Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, This is a special episode where we are going to have a one-on-one conversation Uh, with my old friend Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the National Director and CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, I've known Jonathan since the Clinton administration, Um, but uh, clearly the work that the ADL has been doing has been in the news a lot. Um, uh, And, you know, that's sometimes an unfortunate thing, because if, if, if the ADL is in the news a lot, it means that there have been um, outbursts of um, racism, anti-Semitism, other kinds of social tension, uh, and certainly the last two weeks have seen a lot of that. And I was hoping we could we could unpack it a bit. Um, I, I, I guess I'd like to start with a kind of a general question, Jonathan, and that is, from your perspective, as you look at this moment, um, does it seem in in the political context in the United States to be especially racially charged, differently racially and ethnically charged than than moments you've seen in the recent past? Um, I think the short answer is yes. I think the moment we're living in is more charged on several levels. Number one, I think first and foremost, it's more politically charged than we've seen in recent years. So the divide between left and right, between Democrat and Republican, which I think, as you know, has been building for some time. And we've seen that in fits and starts in D.C., you know, from the 90s when the Republicans took the House to, you know, when President Obama, you know, swept um, both houses to then, you know, kind of the rise of the Tea Party and everything that happened within the rise of Trump. This has been building over time. But I will tell you that I see now that politically it's more charged than ever. And to the point we have a kind of paralysis in Washington where nothing literally happens in government. So then I think it's more generationally divided than it's ever been. I mean, I think the millennials uh, have been, I think, you know, well described in many ways as a real departure from prior generations. And I think that's right. They simply, these are digital natives who see the world very differently than prior generations. But then in particular, to the point you were just making, I think it's all—it's also more racially divided. I think from President Obama winning the White House and then the birtherism that followed to the moment we have now where people literally seem to like divide themselves uh, on issues of race and, and, and heritage and faith it's, it's fraught in a, different, in a way that's different than p- traditional politics or kind of generational gap because it's ultimately more explosive. Well, and it's explosive on several levels. And, you know, <clears throat> one can't help but go back and look at the comments of the president in the past week 
where he was talking about four elected members of Congress, uh, all women of color, and suggested both that they ought to go back to where they came from, which was certainly um, a racist comment and evoked a lot of um, uh, racist uh, and, and nationalist comments of the past, uh, but then also did so by, by, by accusing um, them, and, and in particular a couple of them, of being uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, sort of equating being anti-Israel with being anti-Semitic. Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, it, it, it became rather jumbled up. I mean, it was racism on racism. And I'm wondering, as you deconstruct it, how you view the comment. Well, I mean, so there are a few things in that. So I think, number one, the comment that the president made, this call to, you know, send them back, if you will, they should go back to their country, was particularly egregious and ugly, considering, of course, that all four of them are American citizens, adding insult to injury that three of them are from America, right? I mean, Ayanna Presley was born in Cincinnati. So the, the idea that someone they have to go back to their country just because they look different or have a different heritage, right? Or their ancestors came from a different place. I mean, that, that runs counter to all of our core values as Americans. You don't have to like someone's ideas but the idea that they don't belong here, that citizens don't belong here in our country, that you have to have some loyalty test to qualify, I think is really despicable. Now, add on top of that, I also become very uncomfortable with this, you know, the, the accusation of, uh, the, you know, as Jews, we're used to divisive prejudice thing and to kind of dividing between us and them between who's, if you will, David Kosher and who's Trafe. But I think it's very cynical for the president to use the Jewish people and even the state of Israel as a shield to double down and reinforce his racist remarks. I mean, I don't agree with all the, with the Congresswomen on a number of issues. I have called out when Congresswoman Omar said the things that she said about all about the Benjamins and whatnot. I've also criticized Congresswoman Tlaib for some of the things that she said. Um, I don't know that the concentration camp metaphor is the best one to describe what's happening on our borders. But just because I disagree with these women on certain issues, and it's somewhat strongly to a degree, doesn't justify, doesn't, doesn't make it permissible to use prejudice to denigrate them and demean them as American citizens. I mean, it should be alarming, I think, to people of all parties when white supremacists are cheering and championing what the president is saying. And we saw that, you know, we saw a prominent neo-Nazi whose name I'm not going to mention here, David, because he doesn't deserve that, that dignity. But he posted on his website last Sunday when the president first made his comments, he wrote, this is the kind of white nationalism we elected him for. So whether or not you agree with the individuals on everything and I don't does not in any way, shape or form uh, give you the kind of permission, give you the kind of excuse to use intolerance to try to undermine them and to try to demonize them as somehow un-American. Well, indeed, 
you know, one of the things that strikes me is that you may or may not agree with Representative Tlaib or Representative Omar, um, but the way our system works is that they're elected by the people of their district and are entitled to say what they like. And if the people of the district don't like it, then they can unelect them. That's exactly uh, correct. That is how the democratic process has always worked for, I don't know, 242 some odd years. And that's how I think good people, if you will, on both sides, to use a phrase, should apply that same logic and that same, those same norms right now. What's worrisome is the shredding of norms. What's worrisome is the undermining of the protocols uh, that have bound the, the republic together for hundreds of years. And um, that's what I think we need to be calling out. And again, I got to say one other thing, David. I don't think this is, now you might disagree with me here, but I don't think this is a political issue. The idea that we all fully participate in this democracy, regardless of how we politically affiliate, that, that isn't partisan per se. <clears throat> the idea that you shouldn't demean people based on their heritage or based on their race, that isn't partisan per se. The idea that only one side of the aisle um, can, be a, can be opposed to this, that has never been partisan. So what's alarming, I think, again, is how so much of the, the mores which have bound together Washington and have knitted together our democracy are being pressured um, and being, you know, rendered, you know, uh, what would you say, like unrendered through this and unraveled, David, I think is really worrying. Well, you know, I, th I, th I think it's partially a political issue. I think it's certainly largely a cultural issue. And, uh, you know, it, it, you can find in both political parties people who have said things they should not say. Um, and indeed, in the Republican Party, you have Stephen King, who has been a yeah. uh, racist supportive of neo-Nazis. The president himself has said uh, positive things about um, neo-Nazi organizations, white supremacist organizations, uh, and, and, and so forth. And so they're certainly in no position uh, to argue their political superiority on these issues. Now, having said that, one of the most pernicious aspects of all of this has to do with the cultural context as well as the political context it takes place in. The president received very, very limited pushback at first from his political party on, yeah. on making these statements. Uh, and when he did receive comments, many of them were like, well, it's not a racist statement. You know, saying you should go back to your own country if you don't like it here has, you know, I think John Cornyn said something, you know, there's a long tradition of that in the U.S. as if that were okay, right? But, but, but there was this kind of minimization and defense which leads to normalization. And, and it's compounded, candidly, by the media, right, who yeah. use euphemisms rather than to say this is racism or, the, or, or opportunism or to use more direct words uh, regarding these kind of outbursts. I mean, you're right about that. I think that the, the, the press has a responsibility to call this out in an, in an unconditional sort of way. And you would expect politicians on both sides of the aisle to do much the same. You would expect that elected officials, particularly ones who've got very safe seats, would simply be able to say, um, you know, to say what this is when it's racism, you know, unvarnished. 
and it's alarming and and certainly i mean alarming is is, is one word for it it's it's disconcerting david and disappointing when we hear these lukewarm condemnations from some republicans i call that a failure in leadership um and what i think the one thing that we need in this moment more than ever is we need leaders to lead we need leaders to lead that means people to put aside what their political affiliation might be and to speak out in a clear and concise and consistent way to say this is not permissible because as you said when we allow prejudice and we allow intolerance to become permissible we shouldn't be surprised that it becomes normalized that it settles in and it simply now becomes a staple of the political conversation it's remarkable to think in the year 2019 talking about other people as quote invaders denigrating other people as un-american uh you know, demeaning them as if, again, they don't belong here in this country. It's remarkable that that's become simply the way we talk about the other side. And, and again, to come back to a point I was making earlier, you know, as Jews, you know, based on our own polling, we know that 30% of Americans continue to believe that Jews are more loyal to Israel than to America. In other words, that Jews are less than true Americans, which kind of sets the stage for the chance you hear from white supremacists, which is that, you know, they say things like, you know, go back, Jews should go back to Israel. That we can't possibly be accepted as full-fledged members of society. So we know this charge. We hear it today used against us, which is why we know how pernicious it is when it's weaponized and employed against others. And, well, and it, and it comes in a lot of ways. It's not always just weaponized. If the president has a Hanukkah party or some gathering in the White House, and he refers to, in speaking to a bunch of Jewish people, as you know, refers to Israel as your country, that doesn't help, right? No, that, that doesn't ha- help. And that, that happens. Doesn't help at all. It doesn't help at all. Which is why, like, when you talk about your prime minister or your country, I think it's very ugly, and it subtly underscores this long-standing idea that again as Jews were somehow not fully American, whether he intends that or not does, is not really the point, because I don't know what's in his head or in his heart, but these words have a resonance with a certain segment of his electoral base, and it is really, really troubling. And you know, it, it's fair to say that from some people's point of view, the president has done some very good things on Israel. I mean, I know that, I hear that all the time, but two things can be true at the same time. Two things can be true at the same time. You might agree with the tough line he's taking on Iran, which is the single largest state sponsor of, of terror and, of, and the single largest state propagator of anti-Semitism in the world. You could agree with him on some of his policies with respect to, you know, I don't know, say some people agree with the fact that he moved the, uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. You could agree with some other things that he's done, but that in no way, shape or form mitigates the fact that when you excuse and you, you when you excuse anti-Semitism, when you use racism and xenophobia as, again, part of your repertoire of uh, talking points, you enable some of the worst elements into the political conversation. And for that, I think it's 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 really, really wrong. Well, and, uh, you know, there's a, a variation on that theme, which is the conflation of political views with ethnic or um, uh, uh, cultural views. And, and, you know, this is this. Is something that Trump and 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 frankly, a lot of um, more extreme pro-Israel uh, groups have done, which is to suggest that if you are anti the government of Israel, you are anti-Semitic. And 
you know, there half the people in Israel are anti the government of Israel. Yeah. Uh, and well, I'm just saying. I mean, if you and I were going to have a conversation about Iran policy or about the embassy in Jerusalem or about U.S. Um, uh, support for the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu, we may or may not come out in the same place. Um, I, I suspect we would have some differences. But that doesn't mean that one view is is more pro-Jewish or another view is anti-Semitic. It th That's political. Now, some people can have you know, political views that are grounded in their anti-Semitism. That's another issue altogether. But to equate being against the policies of Bibi Netanyahu with being anti-Semitic is a mistake, I think. Of course it is. And I think most people who are involved in conversations about Middle East policy and conversations about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict don't resort to that. It can, that may happen from time to time, just like some people might say that if you disagree with certain policies in the region or have a certain perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, you're anti-Arab. Um, but I think generally people are rational about that. Although I will acknowledge here, David, that those who weaponize anti, who politicize anti-Semitism, those who try to use it as a shield, if you will, or even as a sword to divert attention from the real problems, I think that I think that's really, really, uh, really disagreeable and, and gross. And so we call that out all the time because it then tends it undermines what are the real cases of anti-Semitism. It then really makes it hard to prosecute these cases and to push this issue in a credible way when people kind of cry wolf, if you will, and try to use it again to shield themselves or even as a sword to politically attack their opponents. Now, of course, another aspect of this that, that makes this moment as fraught as you indicated at the outset um, is not just sort of cultural trends, but also or, or acceptance of certain kinds of um, uh, terminology into our speech. But there's also the institutionalization of these views. And Again, you, you and I may disagree on what we should call the uh, camps for uh, 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 immigrants at the border. Um, uh, but having said that, we have changed our policies with regard to immigration in ways that they clearly target um, Latin people and 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 Muslim people. Yes. And and it's not because you know those people are the only sources of potential problems, right? Obviously anybody could be a potential problem. So, you know, there's a there's a racism that's getting translated into public policy. And, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I think of is that early on in the Trump administration, there was, you know, a Muslim ban which he ran on. And then there were a bunch of court cases and people got numb to that. And Trump actually won some of these cases. And and now we're getting to the point where the administration's about to implement a policy of, um, you know, sort of no refugees, not zero. Yeah. And, and, and which is, to me, grotesque. But I'm wondering, you know, what your view is. No, I think it is grotesque as well. I mean, the institutionalization of prejudice. Again, it, there's a path, right? First, it becomes permissible. Then it becomes normalized. Then it becomes institutionalized and cemented into policy. And whether it's the kind of the unfair targeting of people of color, 
for the marginalization of, of immigrants and refugees, at least those who come from a certain set of countries, right? Uh, I mean, I think it really, it really transposes the core ideas of equality and justice, which are bound up in the Constitution. And it really runs afoul of these ideas that the founding fathers had, who they themselves and their ancestors came here to the United States as people fleeing religious persecution. And so our inability to reconcile that founding history of this country with the contemporary realities that we're dealing with are really, really upsetting. Now, I'll be honest, like I know these issues on the border are not easy. I mean, the, there, there, is a, there has been an inflow of immigrants and people seeking asylum. These, this is hard stuff, so I don't mean to minimize the complexity. And I'm someone who appreciates the, quote, secure borders position. But that is, but I mean, I visited the border myself, David. I've seen one of these facilities where they're holding children. Like, it was grotesque. And it really struck me to the core in terms of seeing children in these, like, in this chicken wire style kind of holding pen. I mean, it was, it was really off the wall. So while I understand the issues are hard, that doesn't mean that we surrender our morals. That doesn't mean we just submit to hard and say it's impossible to then implement the policies in a way which is humane. I just think there's no excuse for the dehumanization of people. There's no excuse for separating parents from their children, some as small as toddlers. I think there's no excuse for adopting a kind of language and a kind of framing for the people who are who are literally undertaking these hazardous conditions, many of whom simply to escape to a better life for their families in, again, in ways which completely, completely disregard the core values that are bound up in our Constitution. Well, I th- you know, I think, you know, you, you say there's no excuse for it. And of course, there is no excuse for it, but there is an explanation for it. Because you could approach it from the perspective of public policy and you could say, well, we need to have secure borders and we need to find a new way to do that. And maybe we can do this with biometrics and maybe we can do this with um, different kinds of you know, online systems for identifying who people are or having them apply. And maybe we can embrace these best practices from other countries and so on and so forth. And we could actually have a discussion about how you have a more rational immigration policy than we have. But the reason we're not having that discussion is that this is not actually about immigration policy. This is actually about capitalizing on the fears of a certain part of America that their jobs are being taken away by people who are from someplace else, who look somehow different, who are often people of color, or capitalizing on the fears that have been instilled post 9-11 about threats from overseas. And it's about fear-mongering and it's about racism as a way of mobilizing people to vote and be um, politically active in a certain way. And it has nothing to do with immigration. Uh, and, And yet if you fall into the trap of suggesting that somehow this has to do with immigration policy, uh, you, you fall and you get on the slippery slope towards normalization. At least that's my thought. Yeah, no, no. I mean, there's something to be said about that. I mean, again, the whole notion of enemies in a political context is, I think, deeply scary and evokes an earlier time in our recent history. And we know how that ended. I mean, you can have people with whom you disagree and you can have strongly held disagreements. But the time for enemies, I mean, that that just does not belong in a mainstream political conversation. Because when you enter in that kind of language, 
when you enter in those kinds of uh, ideas, of course, it pits people against one, one another in a way that's never reparable. I mean, if you were to ask me, like, what I am worried about, I mean, this polarization and the tension it's causing, the antagonism it's causing is very troubling. And I will say that it opens the door to far worse. And I'm looking with great alarm at the fact that, as we've seen in recent months, and you and I have talked about, we, we do have a threat right now. We do have a threat that's global in nature, that's being spread and sustained by social media. And that's, that's white supremacy. And we need this administration and we need this government to turn its energies toward where the real enemies are. Because white supremacy is a global terror threat that's taken more lives and attempted to wreak far more damage than any quote unquote refugee, if you will, who's trying to come in over the border to seek safety and security for his or her family. But it has not gotten anywhere near the level of attention. We haven't applied anywhere near the level of energy. And there certainly is an absence of policy, how we're going to deal with that. And that, to me, is where I'd like to see the president and the federal government in its entirety focused. Well, and of course, there's a foreign policy dimension to this thing as well, because the reality is white supremacy is a threat. So is ethno-nationalism or nationalism, both because it targets immigrant groups and is spreading around the world, uh, and also because it undercuts international cooperation and international institutions, whether you look in the UK um, or, or you look in uh, the National Front in France, or you look in Italy, or you look in you know, Viktor Orban's party in Hungary, or, or, or you look in, in Poland or in Estonia where you've got a national party, or you look in Russia where sort of Putin has been orchestrating a lot of this. But there is this notion that anti-internationalists, people who don't believe in the international system, can use fears and prejudices to promote nationalism, to promote resistance to the EU, to NATO, to the WTO, to the United Nations, to all of these organizations that seek for collective solutions, and undermine them. And so it achieves, and, and those organizations, by the way, amplify the power of countries that believe in the rule of law, believe in democracy, believe in certain kinds of standards. And if you undermine those, inst uh, those institutions, you weaken those countries. Yeah. And and that's that's so you know so there's a multi-tiered trend here but again the racism is not the point the point is to use the racism to empower people with different agendas whether the agenda is self-enrichment or the agenda is you know weakening certain kinds of countries uh, and and it's important to see that as well I couldn't agree more I do think it's a foreign policy issue in multiple ways so number one I think you're right to identify that the advent of these extreme right-wing parties in Europe has changed the, completely changed the political configuration of the continent. And you mentioned a bunch of them, the League in Italy, the Alternative for Germany party, the traditional unionist voice in UKIP, which pushed the Brexit vote in England, uh, the Freedom Party, which has been until recently in power with, you know, Chancellor Kurz. In France, the reconstituted national rally, which used to be known as the National Front, literally was a hair's breadth away from winning uh, the presidency just a couple of years ago when Macron actually won. And the pressure from these parties inside the system has, as you said, created in a kind of uh, pressure on European and multilateral institutions, which just wasn't there before, and it's pressure for the worse. And look, these parties and then the white supremacists who are more violent 
and explicit in their hate-filled rhetoric or on the outside, they share some things, a pro-authoritarianism, being anti-democratic, being anti-multicultural, being anti-immigrant, of course, violently anti-Semitic. And as they advance their interests across the continent, we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing cross-pollination here. It's not a surprise that people like Steve Bannon have moved from the U.S. to there and found among some quarters, the likes of which we've just mentioned, and they've been, he's been embraced and he's really received a very warm reception from some of these types. It shouldn't surprise us that we know that you know European white supremacists and Americans have been cross-pollinating ideas for some time. The shooter in Christchurch, um, New Zealand, earlier this year, he referenced the shooter at, at the AME Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where 2015, the man who killed nine parishioners while they were worshiping, and he referenced the shooter in Pittsburgh, uh, who murdered 11 worshipers on a Shabbat morning. And he mentioned the shooter in Norway from 2011, who murdered 77 people. And it's it's very typical. Oh, and by the way, the man who, who in Poway, outside San Diego, murdered one worshiper, tried to murder many more. In his manifesto, he referenced the Christchurch shooter. So... The trading of ideas, David, is, is part and parcel of the way they operate. And look, we, we, we talked previously in a previous podcast, David, about the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. There were European white supremacists there. And we know American white supremacists frequently attend European white supremacist conferences. At the ADL, we track this kind of thing. I've seen more than a dozen conferences uh, across Scandinavia and Europe that have had American white supremacists showing up as speakers, as attendees, etc. So this is a global problem. And I, the, the challenge with it is that whereas much of our apparatus, our national security apparatus, has been focused very clearly on the threat of, you know, Islam, political Islamist jihadist terror, which remains a threat, I would say ISIS and Al-Qaeda and whatnot, they have not given the same level of focus and concentration to the threat of domestic terrorism in the form of white supremacy, and it is a global threat, and it deserves to be treated as such. Yes, and I, you know, I think even as you described it, you know, there are some areas which which you didn't even get to. I think the Chinese government and its treatment of the Uyghurs, or the Bolsonaro government, which has certain sure. kinds of white supremacist impulses in Brazil, or the Duterte government. There are a lot of governments that approach this, and you know it. It sounds like a plea for sort of old-fashioned democratic foreign policy where you value things like democracy and, and human rights. But if you don't, if you don't stand up for the Uyghurs, if you don't stand up for the protesters in Hong Kong, then we see where that leads. And if you don't recognize that it's not just democracy, but it's pluralism, um, and the tolerance that goes with that, the strength that comes from diversity that you promote, then you're going to end up in these situations. We only have a couple minutes left. I'd like to ask you one last question. Shoot. Clearly, we're in an election context. We've got another Democratic debate coming up at the very end of this month, July. There are more of those to come. Uh, and clearly, there is going to be an effort on the part of president to come back to these issues. Uh, in fact, even after taking a step back away from the chance at his rally, you know, send her home. Um, uh, he, he, he's dove right back in. 
uh, and and picked this 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 group of of four women of color. Um, what what would it be a message that you would deliver uh, to say candidate for president who would listen about how these issues ought to be treated between now and November twenty twenty? It's a good question. Um, I think if I were speaking with one of the candidates right now, I would probably say a few things. So number one, I would say prejudice has no place in our politics. And so I would expect him or her to be pursuing an agenda that was absent the kind of recriminations that have been launched against the other side. And, you know, whether it's invoking uh, anti-Semitism or racism or xenophobia or homophobia or or anti-Muslim bias, I would I would ask, maybe even demand, that the candidates really appeal to our be- our kind of better angels, and honestly, entirely focus our energy on how do we bring the country together, not on how we divide it. So I would do that. Number one, I think. Number two, I would say, you know, as we were just talking about, from the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh to the attack on the Chabad shul in in Poway, we've seen a rash of disturbing and violent anti-Semitic incidences on American soil over the past year. And we're living in a time where literally, because at the ADL we track this, we've seen not only a measurable uptick in incidents, we've seen things like a doubling of assaults, an increase in open harassment. Um, And that comes, that's not just directed against Jewish people, although there has been a more pronounced increase in anti-Semitic crimes than in any other but the FBI has tracked a 17% spike in hate crimes against all minorities. So I would ask the candidates not only to resist any temptation, any temptation, any temptation to resort in any of the kind of name calling which seems to characterize the way a certain person from the other side speaks, and to push for an agenda about pluralism and bring people together. I would also ask every candidate what they plan to do, how they would address at the federal level and using their bully pulpit and implementing real policy. This surge of anti-Semitism and other forms of hate so that it becomes literally, will it be a priority of their presidential administration? It's a good answer and um, it's a good place to end. Sort of off the top of my head, David, to be honest. So I well, it's a good it's a good one off the top of your head, and obviously you're spending a lot of time thinking about these things. Clearly, it's going to come up again, and clearly uh, we hope that you know you can come back and we can continue this conversation. Uh, I know it's important to everybody uh, who listens to our various shows each week, uh, and it's great to have a chance to do a deep dive. Once again, Jonathan Greenblatt is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and they are doing good work, and they do a lot of great research in this area, so you should definitely make sure to follow them. And uh, if you want to find out more about what we're doing in this area and our other podcasts covering these issues, go to the DSRnetwork.com, sign up, become a member. If you get a chance, answer our survey about what like you'd like to see from us. Uh, we're growing rapidly, and we appreciate your support. Um, In the meantime, thank you, Jonathan. Much appreciate it, and thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, David. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.